All right, I have a question for you as we kick off this three-week series on church. Um, Here's the question. Do you ever wonder why we do church? Like, why do we gather together and do this, right? Why do we gather together and sing songs and pray and have some guy stand up and, 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 and teach to you? It's a great question to consider this time of year. It's a great question to consider as we, as we launch into a new year and a new decade. And, and I want to tell you a little bit about my experience with church. I grew up in Texas. Um, and when I grew up, it was a time where church was very ingrained into the culture. As a matter of fact, <coughs> not only did most of the people that I know go to church, stores weren't even open on Sunday mornings because of church. And if they were open, you could only buy essentials there. Like I remember being a kid and being at a grocery store, uh, obviously not on church on Sunday morning, but being in a grocery store on Sunday morning with a twinge of guilt for not being in church, but being there. And seeing tarps of plastic covering over the things that you couldn't buy on Sunday because you could only buy certain things. And, 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 and so church was that ingrained into the culture. And so as a kid, when I look back on that part of my life, here's what I believed about church, that church is a part of life, right? That church is just a part of what people do. It was so ingrained into me that this is what people do. Now, now it's also ingrained into me that this is what people do when you have the time, it fits your schedule, you have the energy, you don't have vacation plans or sports, etc. That's what you do. And if you don't do it, you better have a good reason and, like I felt in the grocery store that day, an appropriate amount of guilt, right? Years later, I became a pastor and then moved to Tennessee. There are quite a few things I learned in my time in Tennessee. One of them is that I thought growing up in Texas, I grew up in the South. I was wrong. I grew up in Texas. Tennessee is the South, right? And, and in the South, church is very ingrained in the culture as well. I lived in a subdivision that had 85 homes in this subdivision. Um, uh, out of those 85 homes, every single household had a church that they claimed was theirs. Whether they went or not, that wasn't the question, but they had a church that they claimed as their church. And as a pastor there, pastoring in a culture where church is that ingrained, here is one of the things that I learned, that a person can be over-churched and under-gospeled, right? A person can be over-churched and under-gospeled. Let me explain what I mean by this. The gospel that we preach here And and every Sunday, you'll hear me preach the fact that Jesus died on a cross, rose from the dead, uh, paid the penalty for your sins, so you can have this good and right relationship with the God who loves you and the God who created you. That gospel, that good news, is found in the Bible. And the heart of that gospel declares that you can have this personal relationship with God. Now, here's what we mean when we say personal relationship. We believe God is the God of the universe, and he is in charge of everything. And this personal relationship is so real because of Jesus that it is as if you are the only human alive. That's how personal that relationship is with the God of the universe. How he does that with his billions of followers in the world, I don't know, but he does. But that's the gospel that we preach, that, that, that this, this real relationship is based on the real good news of Jesus. And that his death and resurrection, when you say yes to Jesus, it removes every barrier 
for you to experience that relationship. When you say yes to Jesus, this is the type of relationship that you have. Now, here's the problem when church is ingrained into a culture, is that sometimes church creates religion, right? Now, here's what I mean by that. This is all part of the introduction. I feel like I'm setting up, setting up where we're going, right? Religion is this. Religion is when people try and create a relationship with God without Jesus, Right? And, 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 and what they do is they have these rules and these traditions that they manufacture to, to create this relationship. And when this happens, and this is one of the things I saw in Tennessee, this is what over-church and under-gospel look like, looks like. An over-church person creates religion instead of relying on the gospel for that relationship. And so what it looks like when the person does that, when their relationship is based on rules and traditions, the relationship with God is fickle at best, right? It is, it is if you're doing good, then your relationship with God is good. If you're doing it all right, then God is happy with you. If you do something wrong, guess what happens to that relationship with God? It's broken is what you feel like. And you feel like God is mad at you for doing whatever you did that was wrong or he's not pleased with you for not doing what you should have done, which was right. And that you start this up and down relationship with God. It's down then and then you start doing right stuff and the relationship is up only until you do something wrong again. And it is this up and down relationship that eventually leads people to apathy. They don't even get angry, they just get numb. And they, they go to church every week. You see, this is what I see in people who are over-churched and under-gospel. This is, this is one of the potential problems with, with, with church being ingrained into a culture, this up-and-down relationship based on what you do instead of what Jesus did. Well, then we move to Asheville, right? And Asheville, as we all know, is a very unique town, right? You've got this southern town with this urban liberal city plopped right on top of it. And so you never know which current you're swimming in. And you might actually be swimming in both at any given time, right? And one of the reasons I love it, and one of the reasons I love moving to Asheville, and y'all, this is going to sound so weird for a pastor to say, but one of the reasons I love Asheville is because church isn't ingrained in the culture here. Right? When we moved here, we moved into a neighborhood that had 55 homes in it. Of those 55 homes, to the best of my knowledge, I, did, I, I think I pretty much met everybody in the neighborhood. I don't know that I knew all their stories fairly well, but I knew most of them. To the best of my knowledge, out of those 55 homes, there were four or five households that went to church. They went to church because they had a church. And they had a church, so they went to church. And one of the reasons that they went to church is they understood something that we're going to see today. Because they understood the answer to this question of why church? Why do we have the church? Why are we doing what we're doing today? What we're going to do is we're going to dive in. We're going to spend three weeks on why church. This week we're talking about why the church exists. When I say the church, I mean T-H-E, capital C, church. Why does, why does this church exist and the one down the street exists and the one that way exists? Like why does the church exist across the world? Next week we're going to look at why this church exists, Fellowship Asheville. And then the week after that we're going to look at why in the world would you want to invest your time and money into a church. Why church. Now, today, what we're going to do 
We typically anchor in a passage, typically we teach through a book of the Bible at, the time, at a time, and we, and we go through our passage and we kind of jump, jump out from there if we need to, but today, here's what we're going to do. It's a brand new year, I'm going to give you the whole Bible in one day, right? I do expect you to come back, but... I'm going to give you the whole Bible one day. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to pop into Exodus. We're going to look at Numbers. We're going to go to Matthew. And then we're going to land in our text for today, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. It's on page 854. If you want to use that Bible in front of you, that's the page number that it's on. Or you can download the Bible app, and we're in there. Uh, and as you're turning there, you can do a couple of little things. You, you can either follow along with us. Because I'll put the page numbers up there so you can follow along with us in your Bible. Uh, or you can go ahead and turn to First Peter and just wait for us to catch up with you. But, but I will say, uh, here, here's an encouragement for you for the new year. Uh, something I would love for all of us to do is to bring your Bible with you. If you don't have one, take that one with you as our gift to you because I want you to have a Bible. But I would love for you to bring your Bible with you because every week we're going to open up our Bibles. And we're going to study them, and we're going to look at them, and we're going to apply them to our lives. And, and there's something about having your Bible open in front of you uh, that, that's just different. And so I would love for, for everyone to do that and to, and to follow along. And like I said, if you don't have one, please take one of ours as a gift to you. Well, let me start at the beginning of, of why the church exists. With the father of the nation of Israel, a guy named Abraham. Now, when we're going to look at him, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at just two verses, one and two. It's on page eight of that Bible uh, that we have. Uh, so when I say we're starting at the beginning, like it's page eight, right? Like it's, it's, it's pretty close to the beginning. Abraham is this guy. When we see him, his name is Abram, but he becomes Abraham. And here's the deal about Abraham. He was just this normal guy. Right, that God wanted to have a relationship with. And so God initiated a conversation with Abraham. And this conversation led Abraham to step out in faith and trust this God that he just heard from. And we're going to see what God tells him. But, 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 but what Abraham does is he moves from a land and a family that's familiar to him to one that isn't. And in this conversation with Abraham, we see a very simple command. So look at, look at, oh gosh, i got to turn to Genesis. Look at, look at um, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Right? So what is the command that God told Abram? A very simple one-word command. What is it? Go. Now here's the deal about go. When God says go, it is the simplest command, but it is the hardest one to follow. Isn't it? Because you see what you leave behind. God sees what you're going toward. And it makes it a whole lot easier when God shows you what you're going toward. And that's what he does with Abraham. Is he shows him his mission and he shows him his purpose. And in this mission and this purpose, we're going to see God say, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. As a matter of fact, look at this in verse 2. So, so the Lord told Abraham to go from your country. And in verse 2, it says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be, will be a blessing. Right? And, and, and so to Abraham, God says, Here's the purpose of me sending you. Here's the purpose of your life. Go so that... You can be a blessing to others. And the way you're going to be a blessing to others is, guess what? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you 
so you can be a blessing to others. In other words, God told Abraham, you are blessed by me to be a blessing to others. That this relationship that he has with God, that God initiated and God started and and God developed this type of relationship was meant to be seen by others and it was meant to impact those around him. Now keep this in mind, this whole blessed to be a blessing. Because what we're going to see is we're going to start here in Genesis and we're going to work all the way through the Bible and we're going to see this blessed to be a blessing over and over and over and over again. And we're going to see that as we go through the Bible, it is this blessed to be a blessing that relies on people trusting the God that's saying that he's going to bless them. And so we're going to see this current of trust, this current of God's got this, and this current of be a blessing because you have been blessed. Now, so we have Abraham. Let's fast forward in Israel's history, right? Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had, had kids. Uh, twelve of his sons, tw- the twelve sons, became the leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel. And when Genesis closes out, it closes out with, with Jacob and his twelve sons going into, into Egypt because that's where food is, and that's, that's where their son Joseph was, and their son has risen to power, and he's going to take care and provide for them, that God had done that. And it's in that land of Egypt that those 12 tribes become a nation. I got you this time. If he comes. For those of you listening on the podcast, we have a wasp again, and I've got a fly swatter, so I do not have to swing a guitar. All right. Where was I? Oh, yeah, 12 tribes, Egypt. They're in Egypt. Egypt is where they actually grow to become a nation. But the problem is they do that under the rule of Egypt, and so they're slaves to Egypt. Well, God, again, initiates a relationship with someone to, 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 to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So who is that? Who, who does God send to, to lead the nation out of Egypt? Moses, right? You've seen, the, you've seen her, Moses, Moses, Moses. You've seen it, right? God sends Moses, and he's just another guy that God initiated a relationship with, i.e. the burning bush, right? That's God drawing Moses into a relationship. And in this relationship, God showed Moses how to lead the nation out of slavery by trusting in God's provision. That's the whole story of, of, of the deliverance of Egypt is that, is that it was this, this calling of them to trust God. Trust God's plans, trust God's ways, trust who God is, and he will deliver them. And, and in Moses, they saw Moses trust God. They saw him be a blessing, and they, trust, they saw him do what God said to do, most of the time he did, And through them, they learned as a nation that they could do the same thing. They could trust this God and do what he says to do, and they could be a blessing, and they could bless others. Some of the times they did, right? And once freed from their slavery, God initiates this relationship now with the entire nation. So where he had had Abraham, and he initiated a relationship with Abraham. Now he has Moses, and he initiates a relationship with Moses. And then the nation is freed from the slavery of Egypt. And now God wants to initiate a relationship with the entire nation and show them what it looks like to, to enjoy a relationship with him through worship. And so turn with me to Exodus now, Exodus 19. And we're going to see what God has to say about this and, and God's desire for the nation of Israel. Israel, at this point, has been freed from Egypt for about three months. 
right? They're, they, they're on the other side. The Red Sea is parted. They're on the other side. Egypt is over here. Israel is over here. They've kind of they've rallied the troops. They've gotten organized. They're ready to move ahead. Much like many of you over the break, you have cleaned out closets. You have organized. You have put things where they go, and you are ready to move ahead into the new year. This is where the nation of Israel was, and God is initiating a relationship with them. And watch what he tells them in verse 3, chapter 19, verse 3. It says, while Moses, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob. That means to the nation of Israel. So God's talking to Moses to tell him what to tell the nation and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. So he tells them, listen, remember, I have shown that you can trust me. I have delivered you from the most powerful nation in the world at the time, and I delivered you in a miraculous way. You can trust me. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So a couple of things that God tells Moses here that are key. One, how much of the earth does God say is his? All of it. Okay, keep that in mind. We're going to see it later. It's this position of authority. And when someone is in, in authority, that you, you, you trust them or you don't. But then what he does is he takes two words that typically aren't put together and he puts them together. He takes the word kingdom and he takes the word priest and puts them together. Now the deal with kingdom is that kingdom can be seen in a couple of different ways, right? If you're a king of a kingdom, you could be the kingdom of a geographical area, right? You're the king of, uh, the king of Oakley, right? Like the like king of Oakley right here in the community, which means you're the king of this community. That's one way to look at kingdom. But a kingdom that doesn't have any people isn't a very good kingdom right? The other way to look at kingdom, which I think is, is, is probably a more appropriate way, and I think it's the way that God is looking at it because he attaches it to the word priest, is that a kingdom is about people. It's not just a geographical location. It is about the people who live in that geographical location. It is not about a nation. It is about a, nation, a nationality. And where did God say he had authority over? All the earth. And, and, and God is saying, I'm going to make you a kingdom of people who are priests. Now, here's what's interesting about priests. This kingdom is a kingdom of people, but it's a kingdom of people who are priests. And what a priest does is they represent people to God, right? They pray for people. They, they, they offer sacrifices for people back in the, in the Israelite time, ancient Israelite time. But they also represent God to the people right? God says something, they tell it to the people. It's what Moses was doing, very much of a priestly, a priestly thing. It's one person doing this job, right? That's typically what we think of. You think of priest, you might think of someone who stands in front doing a lot of what I do. They preach, they pray, they, they, they care for the flock and the congregation. You might even think of me. As a matter of fact, one time we had an international student who was here. Well, she was actually an international teacher that was here, and she was here for a few months, and she kept calling me Father Fred. Right? And I kept telling her, I kept trying to tell her, no, 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 I don't, you don't have to call me Father, just Fred is fine. But it kept getting lost in the translation, so I was like, fine, just, just go with it. So for six months, I was Father Fred, right? Because she looked at me and saw me in this, in this priestly context. But here's what's interesting. Did God say it would be a nation of one priest 
or a nation of priests. It'd be a nation of priests would be the nation of Israel. It'd be a nation of people that represent God to those around them and those around them to God. In other words, God is saying part of this relationship with him is that you are blessed to be a blessing for the whole nation, not just Abraham, not just Moses, but the entire group of people would act like priests and represent people to God and God to people. They would enjoy this relationship with God and invite others to enjoy the same relationship, which means any blessing they receive from God, they would look to who they would bless others with that blessing. Whatever they learn from God, they would teach. They would pray for others. Whatever care and mercy they receive from God, they would give that care and, and, and mercy out. As a matter of fact, this, this desire was so rooted in what God wanted for the nation of Israel Every family would offer their firstborn into temple service so that whenever you went to the temple, this is what God had in mind. Whenever you went to the temple, it wasn't just one person doing everything. It was a group of people doing everything. And that group of people represented the entire nation because in each tribe, although they all spoke Hebrew, they spoke with these little different dialects, right? It's like what I talked about before the Christmas Eve service. Some people have hot chocolate, some people have cocoa, right? It's all the same thing, but there's these little, these little tweaks from tribe to tribe to tribe. And so when you went to the temple, you would see somebody that looked and sounded like you, right? Because everybody was there, and that was God's intent. But then something tragic happened. We don't even leave the book of Exodus before something tragic happens. God says, this is, this is my desire. This is what a relationship with a whole nation looks like with me. And there's something that happens that I think the consequence of what happened still affects how we see how church works today. Because in Exodus 32, and we're not going to turn there because honestly the story's pretty graphic and pretty long. And I just kind of want to tell you what happened. Moses went up to pray again and the nation was there and they were waiting for him to come back to hear what God had for them. And, and as they waited, they honestly just got impatient, right? They got tired of waiting. They got weary of waiting. And instead of, of, of just waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain, they went to Moses' brother and said, yeah, listen, here's the deal. Um, we need to worship a God, and since Moses is keeping that one busy, we should probably think of creating our own. And Aaron did what most people would do when a nation confronts you with something as he stood there in silence. And they created this golden calf, and they worshiped it. And their worship wasn't what we're doing here today. It was despicable. And it caused this sin to spread in the nation. Now, one tribe, though, didn't worship the golden calf. And that one tribe was the, the Levites. They were a descendant of Levi. And they didn't worship the golden calf. And they became the spiritual leaders of the nation. Turn with me to Numbers third, uh, 3. 12, and you'll see this. It's on page 89 in the Bibles that, that are in front of you. And what we see here is God makes this declaration about the Levites. 
And instead of every tribe being represented in the temple, now there's just one. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. God says, God says, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel. Instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of the Israel, the Levites shall be mine. So now instead of every tribe being represented in the temple, there's just one. And it's actually a very sad declaration for the nation. It's good for the Levites, but it's bad for the nation. Because now instead of this kingdom of priests that God, that God desired to have because of sin, now there's only a tribe of priests. Now there's only a small group of people who represent God to those around them and represent those around them to God. There's only a small group of people who are blessed to be a blessing. And I think that still has ramifications today. I think people still think church is what pastors do, not what I do, meaning you, right? Because it's a ramification of this, of the consequence of this sin. Well, the nation of Israel operated this way for thousands of years. And the temple became a place where people would go. Some people would go to enjoy their relationship with God, but some people went to the temple and they created religions there. They created rules and traditions that have to be followed that weren't in God's word, although they were springboards from God's word. What they did is they said, okay, if God's word says this, we don't want to disobey that. So what we're going to do is we're going to create this rule here so that even if we break it, we still got a gap before we break the rule. Well, then what happened is the rules they made up became just as holy and sacred as God's law. And so they became zealous about keeping these rules and traditions, and thus they created all these religions that were, that were spawned in this, in this temple. And when they did that, they stopped being a blessing to other people. They were still being blessed by God, but they stopped being a blessing to others because they were focused on themselves, and they were focused on keeping these rules and everybody else keeping these rules. And they were trying to keep these rules so they were to have a relationship with God and, 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 and negating the way that God said to have a relationship with them. They became comfortable with power, and they became really uncomfortable with serving others. Into that, Jesus was born. And Jesus stepped into all of that, to all of that religion and all of that power and all of those rules. And what Jesus did is he would look at those leaders of the church and, y'all, he called them names. Like, like names that if, if I said this in church, like, y'all would think I've lost my mind names, right? And he looked at the religious leaders and pointed them to their sin. And then he would look at common people and say, they're the faithful ones. He would look at a widow who gave sacrificially of her income and dropped it in a box. And he would say, y'all, look, that's what generosity is. He would look at a prostitute that worshipped at his feet. And he would say, y'all, look, this is true worship. They would say, she's a sinner. And he goes, no, 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 this is worship. Well, then those in power, they didn't like that. People in power don't like it when people threaten their power. And he was threatening their power because he was talking about a life in the spirit, not a life of rules and regulations. And that God loves you based on on this coming Messiah, which he said he was. And that that relationship with God would be restored and it would be restored by faith, not by keeping the rules. They made a pretty good living off of people keeping the rules. And so they created this plan to kill Jesus, and they succeeded. And he died on a cross and died the death of a criminal, although he did nothing wrong. 
And I say they succeeded, they only thought they succeeded, because three days later, what happened? The resurrection. That's their uh-oh moment, right? And his resurrection proved something. What his resurrection proved is that it proved that everything he said and everything he did was true. And what his resurrection proved is that we can trust him. We can trust one who has authority over life and death. And the resurrection proved that God is about to start restoring everything that sin broke, right? Because here's what you've got. You've got, you've got, you've got Abraham over here, and God says, go. Be blessed. Be a blessing. I'm going to bless you. You bless others. You've got Moses. You've got the nation of Israel where God is initiating these relationships with them, saying, trust me, trust me. And all the way, you've got sin. I mean, I mean, I mean you know, that was on page 8, right, in Genesis. If you back up a couple of pages, you see sin enter in the, in the garden. Like, sin is this current that runs through, and it keeps breaking stuff as it goes, and it keeps leaving these consequences that God never intended. And then Jesus steps in, and he's resurrected. And what we're going to see Jesus do after his resurrection is he's going to come in, and he's gonna, you're going to hear him repeat what Abraham said to his disciples. And you're going to see Peter, when we finally get there, you're going to see Peter say, this is what this looks like in the church. And what Jesus is going to do is he's not going to fix what sin broke. He is going to restore what God had already intended. Because fixing what sin broke, what sin breaks, just fixes it. He is in the business of restoring it and making it brand new. Right? And so now turn with me to Genesis, I mean to to Matthew. Because we're going to see Jesus' last words to his disciples. Now, last words or lasting words is what somebody who's a much better speaker than me said, and I think he's right, though. You pay attention to the last words somebody says. Jesus has been resurrected uh, now for a month with this time with his disciples, and so these are his final words to him, and what we're going to see is this ties together some of the things that we've been seeing. Look at, at verse 18. It says, Jesus came and said, so he's on this hillside, and his disciples are gathered around, And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, God said that to Moses. He said that to the nation of Israel. He used the statement, they are mine. The world is mine. This nation is mine. These tribes are mine. The Levites are mine. Whenever God says that, it is a statement of authority. It's God saying, listen, I got you. Right? You can trust me. And Jesus says, guess what, guys? All heaven and all earth is mine. Guys, I got you is what he's saying. He's saying the same thing that God said all throughout history. In other words, he's saying, listen, you can trust me. Everything is under my authority. Verse 19. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Go. Who did God say that to? Abraham. We're all the way back over here. Jesus is saying, go, guys and girls, men and women who follow me, go. Go to a place that you're unfamiliar with. Go to with with family that you're unfamiliar with. Go. This thing called the church is a movement. It's not static. It's not just supposed to be here. It is supposed to be everywhere. Why? Because where does Jesus have authority? Everywhere. 
Go, therefore. And now we get to see the reason. We get to see the mission and the purpose. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Of all nations. There's that kingdom again. It's people. Right? And so here's the picture. All people. Right? These disciples are to go to all people because all people are blessed to be a blessing. That's God's intention is that through this movement called the church, people are blessed to be a blessing. The people that they bless come to Jesus. They realize they're blessed to be a blessing. And this process continues and continues and continues. And so what does this look like? In the rest of verse 19, it says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so it looks like baptizing people. That, that means you're, people that don't know who God is, that don't know who Jesus is and how you can have this, this good and right and personal relationship with the God who loves you and create, he created you, they get invited into that relationship with God through Jesus. That's called evangelism. It's, the, it's, 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 it's parents. It's what you do with you, your kids. When, when, like Cam was saying, you're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to them, you're introducing them to who this God is and who this Jesus is that, that is the bridge to him. And, and, and it's what you do with your coworkers when, when you show them what it is to be a Christian. And they finally ask, they, when they ask you, and they're like, how in the world can you have any sense of peace in all the chaos that's going on right now? And you say, well, because I'm a Christian, and I know who's in charge. And that starts a conversation. Like, that's evangelism. When you baptize people, when they say yes to Jesus, they get to make this public declaration that they, are, that they are a follower of Jesus. We're going to have a baptism January 26th, and I'm excited about it. Because this person has said yes to Jesus. And it's not just evangelism. It's also, it's also deepening and maturing the faith, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. You see, that's why we go. And this is, this is what happened with those disciples. This is what I talk about in Discovery and DNA, and I always say, you know how we know this works? Because we're here. That mountainside was 2,000 years ago, somewhere near Jerusalem. And he told his disciples, go and make disciples. And you can track your spiritual heritage to either that hillside or Paul, which is another whole other story. But it's one of those two places. Because they told someone who told someone who told someone who told someone, fast forward, who told you. And so that's what Jesus is saying. You go so that you can be blessed and, and, and you can be a blessing. You go so that people know your God and you let them in to know your God. Now, let's fast forward a little bit more to Peter. Let's get to our text today. All this has been the introduction. Why are you laughing? Like, that's weird. No, I'm kidding. It's not. We're almost done. All right, let's go to our text today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Because we're going to see how this translated in Peter's world from being one of those disciples on the hillside that heard Jesus say that to, to what it is now. Peter is going gonna, is gonna to define this movement that we know as the church, and he's going to say, this is why the church exists. 
Now, Peter, like I said, was one of those disciples that was on that hillside. After the, the ascension, after Jesus left, he became one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. He became, he became a pretty, pretty, popular, pretty popular leader in the church. And, and so this is his letter to talk about what, what, what is this thing called the church. And so look at v- verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Some translations say, you are a kingdom of priests. He's going all the way back to page 8 in Genesis and saying the church, this thing of people following Jesus and, 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 and being a blessing so that they can bless others, for those of you who have said yes to Jesus, you are now this kingdom of priests that God had in mind all the way back in Genesis. Verse 9 goes on to say, a people for his own possession. There's that authority language again, that we can trust the God who, who, calls us, who calls us as part of his kingdom. We can trust the God who calls us priests. We can trust the God who blesses us. And then look at how we bless others. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, evangelism. You Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we proclaim the excellencies of who God is because we have experienced who God is. We give mercy to people because we have been given mercy. And so here's the answer to, to why church, here's the answer to why church exists because of this. It's because the people of God, being the place of God, the place where, where people get to experience who God is and what he's done, that's always been God's plan. The people of God being the place of God has always been the plan of God, always. And so church isn't about a location, it's about a people. And why do those people exist? Because we have been blessed by God and we can bless others. It's a people who have this personal relationship with God based on the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a people who are blessed by God and from that blessing bless others. It's a people who are blessed to be a blessing. That's why church exists. And we get to carry out the mission given to Abraham given to Moses, given to the nation of Israel, and given to the disciples. Through Jesus, God draws us into this plan that he has always had. Now, there's no better way to respond to this than communion. And communion is a time where we celebrate the blessings of salvation, and we leave this place to go share that blessing with others. And so here's what I would love for you to do as we go into communion. The band's going to come up, and they're going to play some background music. And, and what I would love for you to do, and, and the way this works here at Fellowship, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've said yes to Jesus, then come to the table and, and, and grab a cup and grab a cracker, the white plate or gluten-free crackers. Go back to your seat, and we'll take the elements together. You don't have to be a member of Fellowship. You just have to be a person that has said yes to Jesus. And here's the deal. Some of you haven't said yes to Jesus, and maybe this is your first act of faith. Is saying yes to Jesus. Yes, you want him to be the bridge, the only bridge that you can have this type of personal relationship with God. And when you come to this table, it is you saying yes. Maybe, maybe that's you today. And for those of us who have already said yes, when you come to this table, 
I want you to spend some time thinking about what Jesus has done for you in providing this personal relationship with God. And then I want you to ask, who in your life are you to carry that blessing to? If you're a parent, you've got kids, right? That's a natural, easy answer. If you work, you've got coworkers. If you live in something other than a you know, 15-acre field, you probably have neighbors, right? You're blessed to be a blessing. Ask God who this week needs a blessing from you, a phone call, a text, an encouraging word, anything. And let's do that as we meditate on the blessing that we've received. Jesus, you are good to us. And you bless us in many ways. And, and, and you bless us in salvation, that you do remove the penalty of our sin that we couldn't pay. And, and, and that's what Jesus has done to remove the barriers of this relationship. And in that relationship, Father, you, you calm our anxiety at times. You, you, you give us motivation when we're unmotivated. You, you give us peace in a chaotic world. Father, and, and, and you do that not just for us, but you do that so that we can give that out to others. So, Father, as we come to this time and reflect on your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us, may we just sit in your love. As Cam and the team have been singing about your love, may we sit there first. And then from that place of unconditional, unfettered love, may we, may we then look out and say, okay, God, who? In Christ's name we pray, amen.